0: Okay, Uh, we are just about to start with Southeast Asia Connect, episode 11. Very excited today. Uh, Our first episode ever in November. (laughs) Um, Actually, it's what? It's eight weeks to Christmas. No, eight weeks to year end. Chris, are are you ready to let go of 2020?
1: Absolutely.
0: (laughs) So 2021 will be so much better or just even more different? (laughs)
1: No comment, but you know what? We can't go wrong. We've got Nigel and Joelle here and uh, favorite part of my week, uh, this webinar. So all good.
0: Okay, so then uh, let's, uh, let's kick it off. Welcome to Southeast Asia Connect. This webinar and podcast series is for founders and investors of Southeast Asian startups connecting the Southeast Asian ecosystem to the world brought to you by Northridge Partners and Precious Communications. Together, we've worked with hundreds of entrepreneurs and investors to raise capital, grow their business, exit, and establish a fun and successful communication strategy designed for success. Today, we are about to talk about the successes, the good, the bad, and the ugly um, in the area of uh, merchants, super apps, B2B, and, of course, Southeast Asia. My name is Lars Ferdisch founder of Precious Communications, and your co-host uh, co-host, I'm an Economist by Study and Storyteller by Passion. And before I tell two more st- uh, too many stories, I'll hand it over to the man of the hour, the man of the money side, Chris.
1: My name is Chris Strand. I'm the head of Northridge Partners Asia, where we work with Southeast Asian entrepreneurs to raise capital, grow their businesses and exit. On today's topic, merchant platforms in Southeast Asia. Google talks about the next billion users, but is it really the case for Southeast Asia? Because arguably a significant part of those billion users or big pool of users will be served and acquired indirectly by the millions of SME merchants, which form quite a long tail in the emerging markets in Southeast Asia. In this episode, we explore one, the shift to B2B, B2B super apps. Bookakas is an app for merchants, digitizing their bookkeeping, and is a gateway to electronic financial services. Bookawarong is arguably in a similar space. Mocha purchased by Gojek gave them an enlarged merchant presence. And of course, Fave has a tie-up with Grab and a strategic investment from the largest Indian non-bank merchant network, none other than the giant Pine Labs. Two, the sheer size. The merchant enterprise segment actually forms the majority of economic activity, not the large corporates. Depending on statistics, some 60 to even 80% of Indonesia's economy is via the activity of these small to medium enterprise merchants. And in Singapore, which is a city state, 50 to 60%. And lastly, the economics around these merchants. Are revenue models different? Are they better? And what is the path to profitability? So I'm very, very happy today to have one of my best friends in the industry, Nigel Lee. Nigel has over the last 20 years focused on shaping the landscape of financial services. He's been a significant and senior executive with some of the largest multinationals in the industry such as American Express and MoneyGram, always operating in the developing markets, particularly in Asia. At APIS, he uses his experience to shape the strategy and performance of their portfolio companies and looks at the most promising new investments to join. APIS is an international fund specializing in financial services with assets under management of around a billion US dollars. Its LP base is roughly a third strategic institutions, banks, insurance companies, a third development finance institutions, the likes of EDB and the IFC, and a third fund of funds, sovereign wealth funds, and family offices. And for build the dream, we have Joelle Neo, founder of FAVE. FAVE is Southeast Asia's leading loyalty and rewards platform with presence in Malaysia, Singapore, and Indonesia. Prior to FAVE, Joel was one of the initial founders of the Groupon business in Asia, where he played an instrumental role in establishing the high-growth business into a multi-billion-dollar company that had presence in twelve companies, uh, twelve countries. I can't wait to start, but before that, today's poll last. <laughs>
0: Thanks, Chris. And also welcome, Nigel. Uh, welcome, Joel, from, from my end. Very excited to kick it off. So let's, let's have a poll. Let's look and, and get an idea from uh, our attendees. The next super apps for the B2B side, the merchant side especially, right? We know all the idea, super apps, especially driven from the consumer side. Now let's look from the B2B angle. Is that the next big thing? Won't take off or the Gojek, Shoppies, and Co. will... Grab also that market. So let's see what our um, attendees think. Chris, what do you think? <laughs>
1: next big thing. Next big thing.
0: Joel, of course, the next big thing, right?
2: Yeah, you no, know, I, I actually tried voting, but uh, it says your hosts and panelists can't vote. So unfortunately, okay. I'll have what to. Would you uh, have to vote?
0: <laughs> yeah, definitely. Thing?
3: Yep, that's that. That's my vote. Okay.
2: Hey,
0: Nigel.
3: No, Gojek and Shopee and Co go, are going to grab all that market. We know that.
0: Uh, <laughs> okay, let's close the poll and see what the, what the results are. Next big thing, but it's not a clear cut. Two yeah. blue, one
1: red. Like
0: the race.
1: Please, last orange, orange, orange. Orange, yeah, we cut. We cut. <laughs> no further comment other than it's orange, not red. <laughs> okay, uh, Chris,
0: uh, take it away with, with Nigel and the money side.
1: Excellent. So as we always do, we start off with the money. Nigel, again, welcome. You're an operating partner at APIS. Please tell us a little bit about your background as a payments financial services executive and what led you to go into the dark side of investing with none other than um, big specialist, fintech specialist PE growth fund.
3: Hey, well, look. First of all, thank you all for um, uh, for for having me here, Lars and uh, Chris, and Chris for, um, I, for for suggesting that I am one of your best friends in the industry. You have many friends in the industry, my friend, So, um, but I feel I feel pleased to be part of that part of that group. Um, look, I, for my du- my journey into the into the dark side, as you say, of investing was I kind of came from the back to the front of um, of the payment sector. I started my journey in financial services with EDS outsourcing businesses. So outsourcing financial services. I moved to First Data in China to to basically start payments for First Data in Asia Pacific. And actually grew part of that business throughout the region by doing acquisitions from a strategic perspective in the payment space in Korea, in uh, Southeast Asia here with forming the standard chartered bank merchant, Merchant Alliance called Merchant Solutions. And then, um, and then acquiring in India, uh, the India business, merchant business called ICICI Merchant Services and became First data merchant services. So, so I'd sort of gone through that journey. I then stepped to do remittances, which is another part of the merchant business, getting closer to the front end, uh, where you're dealing there with agents and consumers, of course, and then finally with Amex, actually the launch of, of I guess what is the closest thing to the FinTech part of uh, of the business, which is the launch of prepaid mobile and digital products for Amex to consumers and through to businesses across the across the world. So everywhere from Mexico and Brazil, right way through to um, right way through to Japan. And so actually, for me, stepping across to then look at the investing side has been has been almost a natural extension because I kind of been there in the big businesses trying to help them move the needle but actually what you notice is that most of the big businesses struggle to actually do brand new things. Whereas on the investing side, we get the chance to actually, frankly, stop, stop smaller businesses making the mistakes that the big businesses have made and help figure out how we can help them leverage the great things they're doing and move them and grow them across the geography sets. And there's such a lot that's happening in this space. It is so incredibly exciting. So it's a It's quite a privilege to actually be operating here in these geographies and and being on the, as you say, the dark side, but actually I don't see it as the dark side. Without the money, there's simply no way we could make some of these businesses grow to be as successful as they can be. And it's actually quite a large
1: fund with an international presence um, that we'll touch on later has made investments in both Africa and uh, South America, uh, but in terms of Singapore, am I right to understand that there's effectively three of you guys um, permanently based in Singapore, and you're covering Southeast Asia from Singaporean base?
3: No, that, that's correct. Nick. That's correct. And we've got, uh, and you're right. We've got, we've got um, investments across multiple geos, and I think what's interesting is that probably 60% of the of the investments we've made to date have been in the payments or payments related space and that's largely to you to the point you talk where this con, this this whole forum and webinar is about which is that's the space that we feel is a space that is going to be reaching the ecosystems sooner than necessarily some of the other product spaces like like insurance and 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 lending and other areas and we are investing in those spaces but payments is almost the backbone uh, the infrastructure that gets you there mm, 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 mm. And
1: so delving into that, um, when you look around, what excites you about the shift to B2B, um, the move to supporting these merchants, and I guess other actors within this, largely otherwise, you know, people don't really think about aspect of the supply chain because it's not obvious, it's not retail in front of them.
3: Yeah, so 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 I was going to say, the first thing that really is exciting is that instead of burning tons of cash trying to Trying to acquire consumers and then lose them the following day. You know, the B two B business allows me to go out and play golf and you know, uh, and deal with executives to build relationships. Now, that's not entirely true. That it's I wish it was actually the only true, but <laughs> but, but actually the, the reality is that as you described, sixty to eighty percent of geographies around ASEAN, uh, their GDPs come from small medium merchants, and what's interesting is that they split often into verticals. That one of the things we look at when we're thinking about investing is how do you invest in something that has a moat and it's it's kind of one when you're going b2c i mean i don't want to trivialize it because it's really not trivial but pouring money in because and then marketing it out to a variety of consumers is a one-to-many proposition the b2b propositions are much more trying to figure out how you can get um, a much more of a of a many-to-many touch point how you can get many businesses at one end, many component value propositions to be delivering through to many merchants at another. And that and you can see that actually happening with even within the ecosystem. The, the schemes, the Visa and Mastercard on the payment side spent much of their history actually focused on the banks focusing on the consumer side. But actually they're now beginning to realize that they need to focus the, their time and effort on the merchant side in the supply chain with cards that can be issued from a prepaid or a payment perspective to help facilitate the value chain. That's where the value propositions now lie. And actually that's where probably the margins lie as well. Um, And so so we're pretty excited about it because that means that there are opportunities that are difficult to be able to replicate. They require effort to, to achieve. And another function of B2B is that usually the path to profitability is much shorter. Now, the growth speed might might not seem as quite as exciting, but actually, over time, you build sustainable businesses in the B2B space. And so for us, that's what we see as being interesting here. And we see it as being fundamental that TAM is massive.
1: Mm. So to surmise, the actual mode of engagement is fundamentally different. And I would suspect that when you start to delve into these transactions, they are deceptively simple. We take it for granted that it just works, (laughs) but it's not. And then you're looking at a quicker path to profitability, uh, even though the growth may or may not be there. Um, We might touch on, you know, when you looked at the previous APIS investments in Latin America and Africa, uh, are there lessons that you've taken into there uh, from, you know, to here? Um, and maybe even touch on, I think if I remember correctly, there was one exit out
3: of uh, Latin, uh, South, uh, Latin America. Um, no, actually an exit out of Africa recently. So that was the one you're referring to. And that's actually a good example. Uh, so that is a payment business. It's an online payment business that we took the view that we needed to build largely from scratch within Africa to create an entity that was across multiple African countries. And traditionally, you would think of a merchant business as, as a business that an, an online merchant business as being a business that basically just uh, just was a payment gateway or a payment facilitator business, just swap transactions, settle settle funds, maybe had a payment payment page, and that was about it. Actually, we began to realize is to service the merchants properly and make sure that they could be effective. Each of the countries there had different wallets that they needed to be able to have enabled on the platform each of the merchant different tiers some of them needed we wanted to for example have some of those merchants financed and one way to do that is to be able to provide them with a card in order to actually have almost a card they can pay activity through their supply chain when they buy goods that they want to then on sell to consumers and um, you suddenly realize you, you have to craft value propositions around these merchants in order for them to be able to to be more than just a payment switch and you to be more valuable to them than than just that. And, you know, and we see that everywhere. So that particular business, we did exit in Africa, which is, uh, and we, by the time we went from, I think three countries initially, when we first bought the business to somewhere near 20 odd countries across Africa and created a really significant footprint in the merchant space. And some of those, some of those, Learnings there were really the epiphany for us that this actually is the way in which businesses are going to go in the emerging markets, that the merchant space is going to be a gateway for services um, for many, many, many uh, solution sets and ecosystem. A merchant needs funding, a merchant needs insurance, a merchant needs an ability to do to reach their consumer for pay after or pay-before services. And you can't do that unless you actually have a focus around being able to capture and service those merchants and so for us that actually the Africa experience told us a lot about what the way in which these markets are going to develop within South and Southeast Asia.
1: So how's that for you Lars? I mean, it's typically, you know, we look at the US experience, we look at the Chinese experience, Indian experience, and you know, sometimes the European experience, but uh, first time we're hearing about, you know, where we can learn from everywhere, including Africa. So before we get on to Joelle, um, one last question, Nigel, are there areas of focus that people should be looking at, but maybe they're not?
3: You know, uh, well, I think that there are a few areas that are really quite, quite interesting they're happening i think one of them if i take an example that that i think is is quite interesting the enablement for e-commerce of the large sway of smes is going to take a very different form here than it has for example in the u.s uh, companies like shopify in the u.s which uh, effectively are a little bit they become a service to a merchant for putting up a website so they can become e-commerce and behind that they fold in payments and other services. So, the, the the issue with that in these markets is that actually most SMEs are not equipped to even do that. So, so businesses like that are going to have are going to actually only really fit with the top end of the pyramid. The rest of the pyramid, we're going to see commerce being done through WhatsApp, commerce being done through linked payments. We're seeing we're actually seeing ourselves in supply chain significant payment opportunities coming through being able to provide payout services uh, for major corporations and banks. Those are areas I think that are really beginning to to start to take off in these spaces around the region uh, because they're needed. And COVID has accelerated some of that because of the inability of people to actually go through payments physically and having to pay business to business or business to person in other forms. So we, we see that as being a really interesting space that's uh, that's occurring and, and showing much promise.
1: Thank you, Nigel. What a great way to kick off. Lars.
0: Yeah, thank you. First, a reminder to our dear attendees, um, we always have about 20 minutes for your questions. So start posting them in the Q&A section, not the chat function, the Q&A section, um, or just look at other people's questions and upvote them usually we always run out of time to answer those questions if you wait until the very last minute unfortunately we might not have time to come to all of your questions so post them early uh, now over to joelle and 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 faith right so um, when you started faith how did you start uh, and come up with that uh, i know you've come a long way did you directly st- start and think yeah b2b is the way to go i mean did you
2: have no, a short yeah. Uh... yeah, so firstly, thanks, uh, Chris and Lars, for inviting me for this you uh, know, panel session. Uh, you know, looking forward to your questions or uh, all, all the participants' questions later. Um, so it, it's actually accidental for us. Um, so probably I'll kind of, in, in a nutshell, Faith is a fintech platform that uh, provides loyalty and uh, payment, digital payment services to offline merchants. Um, and, uh, you know, it wasn't, that grand vision when, when I first started my journey as an entrepreneur. So it, um, it was a cumulative uh, experience building. Um, so I started uh, early in 2008, 2009, building my like, first internet company. <laughs> that, that's um, where um, you know, it's, we've always kind of been in between merchants and, uh, and customers. Right? So the first platform that we built uh, was an advertising platform. So at that point of time, uh, you know, we had like merchants or we had brands who want to reach out to consumers. So uh, a platform that kind of sits between merchants and consumers, we've got to figure ways to smartly add value to both sides, right? So um, the, the first platform, the value prop was really around giving good content to consumers, engaging content, whether it's good reviews, uh, promotions. And uh, so like thousands of customers who can't check it out every day. And then we give uh, advertisers or merchants an opportunity to reach out to new customers. So slowly that platform evolved to become a voucher platform as we realized that that could actually close the transaction loop between uh, you know, customers searching and or, or reading up good articles and eventually doing taking a call to action to grab or to buy that voucher and go to the particular merchant, right? Um, so that's that like, kind of like first leap into uh, what we call like e-commerce, Uh, where we were selling vouchers and our business got acquired by Groupon. So I was there for five years from uh, 2010 uh, all the way to 2015. So we built one of the largest customer acquisition uh, platform uh, across the world. Uh, But one of the the things that morally challenges me with uh, with Groupon was that um, we were taking a lot away from merchants right? And giving a lot to consumers. So what consumers initially loved the, the discount vouchers, um, but you're taking a toll on merchants. Because if you think of uh, a product that is worth $100 for a merchant, if they give a 50% discount and a 30% margins to the platform, essentially they're only taking 20%. So out of $100, they're only taking back $20. So it's okay for the first couple of months. But what we start to see is that the consumer experience was then compromised because merchants realized that you know, it's tough for them, right? So they they would actually provide even like, uh, uh, you know, not so good experience, whether it's on the service base, or a product base to the customer. So that kind of got me thinking uh, about how we can actually create a more sustainable model that connects merchants and consumers uh, much better, right? Instead of just one-off acquisitions. Um, and, uh, you know, the more I read up, about loyalty uh, platforms or loyalty solutions, the more I got really engaged uh, in in thinking about how do we build the best loyalty platform for merchants to connect with their consumers. And uh, one thing that really shocked me was that most loyalty platforms uh, that were existing in 2015, were actually serving the platform. For instance, like Visa or MasterCard or Amex, they had a loyalty program that it's meant to be, to make the customer loyal to Visa right? It's, it's meant for, you know, for the, the, the customer to be loyal to, for example, the airline, but it actually doesn't really serve the small medium business, right? So, um, so oftentimes the loyalty, like even if you think about today, some of the largest, um, you know, platforms, whether it's Grab or Gojek or Tokopedia or Shopee, all their loyalty programs are meant to make it, make consumers loyal to their brands, not necessarily the merchants, so uh, by kind of like thinking, um, you know, somewhat like out of that box, we created a merchant first loyalty program where um, essentially our platform has, we have more than, we have close to, close to 40,000 small merchants that runs their micro loyalty program. So for instance, if a restaurant uh, was to issue out a particular cashback or loyalty, or loyalty uh, uh, discount, you can only redeem back the cashback at that particular restaurant, right, or that particular retailer and the results has been phenomenal right so we get like um, you know 70 80% of customers coming back within the first uh, one or two months uh, from from purchasing uh, and it works uh, re- really well for them so the natural so we went from marketing to loyalty and uh, we realized that digital payments was one of the, the the you know one of the areas where if you can seamlessly insert loyalty within the payment flow uh, and make it seamless between a customer and merchant we could actually increase adoption so we accidentally kind of got into payments And uh, in 2017, QR payments was on the rise. You know, we stumbled upon it. um, And uh, soon enough, as we started to get a lot more payment transactions, a lot of loyal merchants and customers, um, you know, banks started to come up to us to help them with financing, right? Because of the data set that we have uh, and, you know, kind of being part of the transactions allow us to also deduct right, some of the uh, collectibles of, of lending to merchants or to customers. So that's a bit of, uh, you know, a nutshell of the journey, right, uh, kind of starting from marketing, loyalty, and now to payments and fintech.
0: So then in a, in a nutshell, so what's then the, the value you provide to the merchant versus the consumer versus the, the banks or financial services partners? Uh, and how do you balance it? Because I think, you know, oh, merchant first, does it mean consumer last? or then the banks in the middle, they have the money, so they get an edge, how do you, what's in it for all of them and how do you balance it?
2: Yeah, so I think that uh, th- that's why in that voting chat box earlier, right, uh, box, I kind of voted for the super apps, right, and merchant-focused super apps to kind of uh, take shape instead of, um, you know, like the Gojacks and so on, is because I feel that the those platforms are very consumer-centric in which they are consumer first. But it's very hard to balance, um, you know, to become a merchant first platform. Uh, So the way our worldview is that our customers are actually our merchant's customers. So it is really merchant first and consumer second. Because if we serve the merchants well, end of the day, they would serve their consumers uh, uh, well as well. So if we start with a consumer first value proposition, what the consumers want is they want it probably cheaper, right? Like kind of bigger discounts and so on. So the moment we start in that way, you then put the merchants on their back foot in which that they are now the recipient of the problems, right? Uh, that oftentimes platforms like us create. And a moment like platforms wanna kind of break even or be profitable, then it becomes a toll, right? On, on merchants. So it's really merchant first of all, that's number one. And then the the, the cust- our customers are our merchants customers. So that's number two. And number three is that we inject more consumers to this ecosystem with partnerships uh, with banks, right? So we have partnered with Grab, with DBS, uh, with Singtel Dash, uh, and more to come by allowing all these consumers in in their ecosystem to connect to the merchants that we have.
0: Okay. Um, So um, let's let's look at this year's particularly, right? Um, During Southeast Asia Connect this year, we had nearly every episode where somebody said it one way or the other with trying to avoid the words I will use actually We benefited from COVID. Nobody want to say that, right? Um, But but basically, COVID was an accelerator in many ways. So so what did this year do for you? Because I know you're working with a lot of offline merchants. So even if it would theoretically be good for you, if it's bad for them, it's bad for you as well, right? So what happened this year? How do you adapt and, and did it speed things up, slow things down? Did you have to pivot?
2: Yeah, I I like that blunt statement last. I think this is the kind of the worst year to buy a sports car and kind of post it on your social media because uh, (laughs) you just get a lot of bashing, right, from people. Uh, Yeah, so I think there are some people who do really well. I think most businesses are actually struggling um, to kind of make ends meet, right? Um, So, in terms of uh, uh, the merchants that we serve, so offline retailers, restaurants, uh, on average, business is down anywhere about 20 to 50% right, depending on the lockdown. So uh, whenever a country goes into a lockdown um, and restriction of movement, uh, the, the retailers and restaurants struggle, right? Uh, however, the, so that's the headwind. The tailwind is that cash is, uh, the demise of cash is accelerating. So um, less and less uh, offline merchants, uh, they, would, they, they wanna kind of accept cash, right? So they want everything to be contactless, to be digitized. So cashless is definitely on the rise. Uh, and in fact, if you ask me say last year uh, how long would it take for cash to phase out it's a very hard question to kind of answer but you know as we go through COVID I think it'll be sooner rather than later right so uh, cashless is definitely the, uh, a nice uh, tailwind uh, and you know our business uh, fortunately kind of is, is going according to or kind of riding on that wave Uh, So, in fact, on a year-on-year basis, we are back to uh, growth, right? Um, You know, on a monthly basis, as markets open up, it's been growing. Uh, But still, we are working really hard to make sure that merchants, uh, overall, their businesses are growing back again, right? Because um, I think the challenge for them is that if their top line does not grow, like restaurants, they have fixed costs that they need to uh, support. And uh, we know that if if this continues, uh, quite a number of merchants would actually go out of business. So, yeah, so we are working really hard. To make sure that uh, yeah m- merchants are uh, on a growth path.
0: One last question before we go to the um, our other segments. Um, I understand you know just a coffee shop underneath this build underneath the the meeting room here uh, accepts faith uh, faith uh, uh, Pay. So I love that right uh, faith link to my Grab whatever and I get that for a six dollar coffee. Overpriced you might argue, but that's a different discussion. um yeah what is it when when suddenly I want to go to a a merchant and it's not six dollar it's a a pair of shoes and uh, and 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 the shirt and it's hundred twenty dollars do people are people willing to use these kind of cashless payments for higher amounts what's holding them back and and is there a trick to get entice them to yeah there's actually added value we can give them that cash just doesn't have
2: yeah, so um, I think we initially thought that the, the order value, right, that means the higher it, it goes up, maybe consumers will be less willing to, to use uh, mobile payments or QR payments. Uh, but that actually uh, is not, not true, actually. In fact, uh, some of the largest businesses like Best Denki in Singapore, Gain City, right, we are actually getting huge amount of transactions there. Uh, in fact, I think one of the tailwinds for FAVE uh, in the past couple of months as well uh, again, this is kind of n- nothing controllable on, on our side, uh, you know. but the issues with Wirecard, for example, um, you know, in, in Germany and they, they kind of got out business, kind of got uh, merchants thinking, right? Whether credit card terminals is even necessary. So we had, um, so during that transition as uh, you know, some of these merchants are under-supported in terms of their card terminals, they're actually kind of double-downing on the QR payments, right? Um, because uh, it's like almost everyone in Singapore has uh, you know, an app in which they could uh, pay with, with their phones. So we're seeing actually uh, not just cashless, that's a good tailwind for us. There's a shift from card payments into QR payments uh, in, in Singapore as well, uh, which is actually driving our overall average order value up. So um, yeah, so I, I think, uh, and if you think about, if you look at QR payments, um, it is actually exponentially growing in markets like India and, and China uh, because of the ease of use and also uh, the convenience for both consumers and merchants. And the cost is relatively lower for merchants. So it's kind of becoming one of their favorite ways to uh, accept digital payments. And um, you know, it's, it's something that uh, we've benefited from, yeah.
0: Okay, fantastic, thank you. So many more questions, but I don't wanna take everything away from our audience. <laughs> so I think uh, let's move over to, Rapid fire. So the rapid fire segment, um, I'll throw a few questions at uh, both of you, and you have to give me either one answer, one word answer, or at least maximum a sentence. It's blue because of that. Why? Why is it blue and red? Why? Why are those two colors? So it's 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 pink because of that. Okay, um, f- fits fits better. Um, so winning the super app battle in Southeast Asia, Grab, Gojek, Shopee, somebody else.
3: Nigel, I don't think it's a Southeast Asia battle. I think if it's Southeast Asia, it's Shopee. Otherwise, it's otherwise it's local.
2: Okay, Joel. Yeah, uh, yeah, tough one. But uh, I I think if you say Southeast Asia, it's between Grab and Shopee. Uh, I think both are, yeah. Okay, Shopee
0: wasn't really on the on the on the map of super apps just a year ago when I spoke at Tech in Asia. It's interesting how quickly the market evolves, right? Um, Next one. Let's look at consumers first, then merchants. Consumers are only loyal to their money or they're loyal to brands they truly love. Money
2: or brands? Joel? Very few brands, but mostly money. Okay. Nigel?
3: You know what? I got to go with the money too, unfortunately.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well... uh, (laughs) Okay. Then let's look at the merchant side. So so who are merchants loyal to, right? Loyal towards. Is it their own money and cash? Or is it they really value and are loyal to true partners? Partners? Or also is it the money? At the end of the day again, Nigel?
3: You know, I think it's I think on that one it's partners. They if partners and, and the interesting thing is if partners bring them money, they're doubly loyal.
2: Okay. Right? Joel? Nothing nothing to add from Nigel. I fully agree with that. Partners (laughs) first and money, yep.
0: Very simple question. Business can make money out of consumers, yes or no? Nigel?
3: (laughs) (laughs) You know what, it's proven that you can. But actually, I don't believe in the world of freemium. I think freemium is going to go quiet for a long time. Okay,
0: Joel? Can you make money out of consumers?
3: Yeah,
2: I you know, I would answer it so it depends on competition. I think competition is what re, what makes uh you know kind of businesses loss making. Um, you know, yeah. So everyone kind of takes them to subsidize and therefore you can't make money. But if less of, lack of competition, I think that there's definitely value and okay, money so to be made.
0: Last question, a double question. What keeps you awake at night because of excitement? And because of, you know, you're worried like shitless. So maybe I'll check that word out later. But uh, because of excitement or worry, what keeps you awake at night,
2: Joya? Uh Worry for sure so that uh, we can leave the excitement to our investors so they can sleep well at night. So we take the worry and we let them sleep well. And the
0: excitement part, what, what keeps you uh, awake because of excitement?
2: Um yeah, so I, I think excitement is kind of, uh, it's rare, actually, in a startup, uh, because there's actually more downs, right? There's actually more fire to be put out. Uh, but it's always, uh, yeah, exciting. It's, it's just working with great people. I think that's, um, that's what's exciting.
0: So the analogy is, as, a, as, a, as an entrepreneur, you have to love the
3: fire. Yeah, you got to <laughs> love it. <laughs> Nigel, what keeps you awake at night, good and bad? Hey, so I guess, I guess the good for me, what keeps me awake is the fact that this market is just enormous and evolving. That is just, there's something different every day that we can look at as the market changes. So that for me is super exciting, keeps me awake all the time. What, what worries me about it? I think what worries me at the moment is that too much of the market, the, too much of the opportunities in the market have frankly been overpriced in the last three years. And there's gonna be a hideous uh, come to the mountain moment when many of these businesses are gonna to have to recognize that their path to money is gonna to have to change. That worries me because I think that's going to mean, a. I mean, it's a great opportunity in some respects, but it's also gonna mean a tragedy for a lot of good businesses that can't convince the shareholders to take a down round, and they're gonna to go to the wall. And that, worry, that does worry me actually. Okay, Uh, now
0: let's talk about the worries, the hopes, the good, the bad, the ugly and the success stories with Chris's favorite part, the
1: pitch. All right, so my favorite part of course is getting the money and it's certainly a favorite part for all the founders in the audience. Nigel, when you look at a pitch, Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, some of the things that you like to hear from founders uh, to make sure that you get uh, they get a good engagement from you? And then the second part to that is, you know, in 2020, has anything in particular changed around what you want to hear from founders and need to hear from founders, actually?
3: Yeah. So two things. One will come back to I'll actually refer to one, which is the question that you asked, Lars, which is can you make money with consumers? We typically don't invest in consumer businesses, we haven't largely, unless we can be super convinced about the complexity of the value proposition, um, and then we might. Because um, we've seen too many cases where people come and say, our strategy equals spend lots of money on lots of consumers, once we've got them, then we'll be able to monetize them. Anyone who comes with a value proposition like that anymore, they're dead in the water, we're not interested. I think for us, it's a little different. We tend to invest, we're a growth stage investor. So we want to see businesses when they pitch to us, explain how they're profitable today, explain the unit economics of their profitability and explain how they are going to address their customer growth with meaningful milestones. That's, the, you know, which means I, I don't really care frankly, whether their PowerPoints are fabulous and done by a great banker. I care whether or not- <laughs> You know, it's, it helps, you know, it's nice, I can take them and hang on the wall, but it helps if, we, if, if they can explain to us how it is that they're practically going to achieve their business outcomes over the next two years. And that's what's super key. And actually, I think when you ask what's changed, I think that is the thing that has changed, that companies now coming to market are actually talking about profit and paths to profitability, even at early stage whereas previously they weren't. And uh, and I think that was probably a foolish on behalf of the investors and foolish on behalf of the founders as well. I don't blame the founders, you know, if you can get money, you get it wherever you can, but that's what's changed, I think.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what we've certainly seen in the market are two things. Uh, in all the conversations, there's a much more focus on KPIs, operational financial metrics that path to profitability and then what does that eventual liquidity look like um very much from when we started out in this game maybe about five years ago when i was around you know just build a good business and the scales there and you know it's 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 all so early uh joelle you know to get someone um like pine labs um onto the cap table um and and, and at the same time, strike up a strategic alliance with Grab, uh, quite frankly, you've done something right. <laughs> um, and you know, for the founders out there that want to achieve um, the, you know, the, the, the growth that they want to achieve, they obviously have to get the confidence of these parties and get the money from these partners, uh, parties. Um, over time, you know, what have you changed in your pitch um, what are some of the mistakes that you've made as a founder, if you don't mind sharing and, you know, can you provide some advice to the founders out there, please? they would really um, like to hear that.
2: Right. Sure. Yeah. So um, probably I just add on to the first question as well. I think in terms of financial investors, what I've learned, uh, you know, it, it really is. It's not uh, the, the first pitch when we made our first investor that we get our funding, actually, you know, we've probably met 50 hundred of investors and, uh, you know, we 99% of the time you get turned down, right? So a little bit of grit, I think, when it comes to fundraising. So I know sometimes uh, entrepreneurs or founders come and, you know, they they think it's, uh, you know, they think it's an easy process, but it's actually not, right? Uh, So fundraising is tough. In fact, it's, uh, you know, you you may spend two, three months kind of meeting many, many investors and eventually, uh, you know, able to fundraise. Uh, one of the advice I got um, from one of the investors um, that I, I thought was very relevant is um, they, 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 he asked me four questions, right? How big, how fast, how much, and how long? So I thought that's kind of a good framework to kind of think about a, a business. Um, so how big, essentially, it's, uh, you know, just really scopes out how big is the market of the that the company is focused on. How fast really is, uh, it's about how fast the company has progressed. It, it kind of equates to the product market fit right? So if you've got a big market, but if the product hasn't got a good fit, you realize that, I mean, we find that the company actually goes really slowly, right? So the company is kind of growing fast, then it's got a good product market fit, how much money, right? So how much money uh, do we need to raise? Really kind of uh, is tied into the competitive landscape, right? So if there are a lot of competitors, then somehow companies need to raise a lot more money because they're burning a lot more money. And how long then kind of ties into what Nigel talked about is unit economics. How long before you can actually be profitable, right? And make money. So this how big, how fast, how much, how long, I think uh, is uh, something that we think about every time that we go fundraising. When it came, when it comes to strategic uh, investors then it's quite different so i think uh, chris you asked about grab you asked about pine labs typically for strategic investors they have a different set of questions uh oftentimes it's either you know uh, the a company like like us it's either we are competing with them or we can complement them right so i think it's it's these two uh, uh, paths so uh, to some extent on in, with grab uh, we were competing with them on some areas when it came to merchant acquisition for payments uh, in in some of the markets we were in, so um, competing and, and cooperation is quite it, it's quite a uh, it's quite a fine line. So sometimes we call it competition, right? So um, so competition sometimes is good, uh, and uh, oftentimes also leads to uh, strategic investors when they find that we can do a better job because we are more focused uh, on that particular uh, area. And uh, for someone like Pine Labs, uh, you know they they are very strong as a merchant platform in India. Uh, however, they do not have uh, you know, a, a presence here in Southeast Asia. So that's ac- actually more of a complementing investment to explore uh, some of their products and services in Southeast Asia through us. And likewise, uh, what can we do on a QR side uh, in, in, in India, right, for them. So uh, yeah, so that's kind of uh, how financial investors or strategic investors overlap, uh, you know, with a, a business like us. Uh, and uh, to sum up kind of failures, um, there's actually more failures than successes, I think, in a startup. So, you know, if you read tech in Asia, most of the time you read success stories. And I know um, I know the founders and the editor, Terrence, uh, you know, mm-hmm. he, he wants to write more about failures. But uh, yeah, I, I think it's not a, a great thing to read, but uh, I, I think as a startup, a lot of failures actually goes uh, unpublished. Um, you know, out of the, the products that we talk about today, the two, three products that have made us successful, actually, we have a slew of at least eight to 10 products that have failed. So if you are in faith uh, as an employee, actually you you know kind of experience a lot of failure, launching products, you know, as you scale it, we find unit economics doesn't work, product market fit is not there. So I think in, a sh- in short, it's never give up, right? Uh, as an entrepreneur and uh, yeah, continuously iterate and uh, uh, the, the business. Yeah.
1: Fantastic, thank you. Lars, we've got uh, quite a few questions. Let's uh, get into Q and think we've got one from Lana.
0: Uh, Yeah, Lana is is asking, how are the economics of merchant platforms? Do you think they are profitable business models? And what does it take for a merchant platform to be successful and sustainable? Who want to go first?
3: Why don't I start with that? (laughs) I think the definition of merchant platform is an interesting one. Mm -hmm. Merchant businesses themselves clearly are profitable. I mean, we, we, we are an investor in a business called GHL in Malaysia. It makes money, it's listed on the exchange, you can go and see it. The question though is, if you define for example Intuit, which is as a business platform, dealing with suppliers, merchants, small, medium, large or zero, then those businesses in themselves make money um, and they have the opportunity to be able to get even greater reach by forming part of an ecosystem. Um, you know, and Chris described Mocha as being a good example of that with um, Gojek acquiring them. So, so my view, they definitely can make money without a doubt. Um, one thing I would say, it's a, it's a line I used to use at First Data, which they hated in, in the executive because it was frankly a payments business and only a payments business, is that no one needs payments, but everybody needs to pay. And actually it's, it's fundamentally true. When I talk about it being an infrastructural piece, as John said, you know, when you talk to the merchants, if you can help them with the payment, that's great. But actually, the thing that really matters to them is everything else around it. The merchant platforms start with a payment, often, but that's really a facilitator for frankly everything else that you can do. So, so I, my view is they can be profitable. There are plenty of models out there, and how you come at the problem depends on what particular solution to the merchant you're providing.
0: No. So, Joel, so how much are you willing to, to you know, open the hood and, and let us have a look and share on, on on what works, or do you have to diversify how to make it work?
2: Yeah, so I'll answer that question with, um, there's only two, uh, op- two paths, right? One is that you're solving a real problem for the merchant. The second, you're creating... it's almost like you're making up the problem, right? That the problem actually doesn't exist for the merchant. And I think a lot of times companies fall in the second bucket, which is they're not really solving a merchant problem. They are going in and they are kind of creating a solution and trying to force feed it to the merchant. Um, And oftentimes on the second path, actually you can't make money from the merchants because you think about it, uh, merchants are actually quite simple, right? When you're really solving a problem, they're willing to pay for it. If you're not really solving a problem, they will ask you to pay for it. And uh, that's kind of what you see a lot of times with uh, maybe, for example, e-wallets, right? So, um, you know, when e-wallets kind of started off, they wanted to go to merchants and talk about payment acceptance. But actually, for a merchant's perspective, maybe accepting an e-wallet uh, uh, payment is not really a problem that they think about, right? Uh, it, it's not some like accepting cash, credit cards, e-wallets, you know, it's, it's just something additional, right, for, for them. So therefore, e-wallets tend to be a unit economic negative model where they would have to subsidize for merchants to accept it, right? However, let's say, for example, what uh, Nigel highlighted, one of these portfolio companies, GHL, or ourselves, like what we do is we try to integrate all these e-wallets so it makes it convenient for merchants to accept the payment. Now, if now if that's the value prop, then merchants will say, okay, that's fine, I'm now willing to pay 1% for it. So I think that, um, you know, it really boils down to Two paths: is either you're solving a real problem, or you're actually just kind of making it up right? um, and not solving a real problem for merchants. Yeah.
0: Um, Chris already tipped tipped on the on the next question, right? Um, uh, I think it's related on the added value. Where else is there the value that you can 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 offer? Chris, you want to take it over, or should I bring it to the to the table?
1: Sure, so I might actually slip in another one there. Um, But Joel, maybe just a bit of a challenge. I mean, yes, there's value created. I mean, undoubtedly, you know, even if you look at the classical B2C e-commerce, there was a lot of value in these consumers, never had this uh, range, uh, never had this availability before, the choice and the pricing. Um, So you could have argued that, you know, they should have paid because there's value created. But as we know, you know, competition was in. Um, the reality is, is that when we look at, you know, the whole B2B shift and depending on what, you know, I take Nigel's point, the definition of merchant is, uh, frankly, there's a lot of players that want to go into the merchant space as well. Right. And a lot of them are saying, yes, we're providing value because, you know, we're letting you pay, we're letting you land, <laughs> we're letting you, you know, procure stuff as well. Um, doesn't make it, I, I guess, a bit of a challenge to, you know, you have to provide value and hope competition doesn't come? Yeah.
2: So I, I think that, you know, oftentimes uh, for consumer platforms, especially the large ones, uh, they approach the merchant with, a, with their own worldview, right? Like what do they want to benefit for themselves? So, and as, as big as these companies are, merchants are very simple, right? They, they are asking the question, which is WIIFM, right? Which is what's in it for me? And if that question is not answered, that is, you know, no matter how big the platform is, you tend to end up in a situation where the platform is actually subsidizing most of the things for the merchant. So I think we need to kind of break down and be more granular with what is the value that the platforms provide to merchants. So when it comes to payments, let's say, take for example, even Shopee, right? If uh, for merchant accept Shopee, a merchant accepts Shopee Pay, is that a real true value add? Not really. They can accept any other payments. Now, then what else can Shopee do, right? So maybe Shopee could advertise to them or highlight them. Okay, now that's a value. So I think we just got to kind of break it down and, and see which ones are merchants willing to pay and which ones uh, they are not. But if you look from a merchant standpoint, that's only two things that they value. The first is if you help them to grow their business. The second is you help them to save costs, right? And uh, saving costs, you know, I think it's quite straightforward, right? If you offer something that's cheaper, they're willing to consider it. Uh, growing, I think they're willing to try it out. So oftentimes they're willing to take a, a new solution in. But within a month or two, if the platform doesn't show that it's actually helping the merchants grow their business, they would just drop it. Right? They would tell their cashier, "Look, just take off this QR code, or let's just stop accepting these vouchers." So I think uh, you know it. It is something that. Yeah, I think these are the two value, value
1: points yeah, for merchants. Fantastic. Thank you, Joel. I might switch over to Nigel. And we've got a question from Joy Zhang. Um, what do you see as the potential merchant adoption of pay later in Southeast Asia? And what will be actually the afterpay in the region? <laughs>
3: so yeah, look, you, you'll hear me say this time and time again that regional plays in Southeast Asia are very difficult and um so so i'll come back to the regional question in a second but there is clearly an opportunity for afterpay within the geography and that stems from the fact that there is there's really a small penetration of um of uh, credit availability to consumers okay so clearly clearly afterpay as a concept will work the question actually, I think, is whether or not merchants themselves are going to be capable of paying for an afterpay type proposition that will allow that, that will allow the um, them to be able to, to deliver it in a way that it gets delivered in the developed markets. Because in the developed markets, oftentimes, the ticket sizes are higher, the GDP per capita is higher, disposable income is higher, right? And so the merchants on a per transaction basis can probably pay more. In an after-pay type environment. Because remember, to Joel's point, uh, in an after-pay solution, the way they work is that the merchant pays for the transaction. Okay. So so there's that piece that's that's a bit of a cha- that's a bit of a challenge and a question mark. The other challenge, I think, whilst the game whilst the need left for the consumers, is whether or not there's enough information about the consumers to ensure that after pay transactions And the the risk associated with them can be managed effectively. Again, in developed economies like Australia and the US and the UK, there's enough information about the consumer to know whether your lending criteria in the first lending piece is is actually going to be sensible. So those are two big question marks on how much, how quickly after pay propositions are going to be able to be rolled out fast. I think on regional basis, the question about regional is a bit more difficult one, because I think I used to, you know, I I used to talk, have lots of American um, American partners. I worked for big American companies, and many of them would come out to the to uh, they'd get me on calls and they'd say, "You're based in Singapore, are you?" "Yeah." So that's in China, isn't it? Right? And there'd be this assumption that the whole place around Asia is one big entity that's uh, homogeneous. We know that ASEAN isn't, right? In particular, and as we said here, you look at Singapore and you look at um, Philippines and you look at Vietnam, and there aren't that many players who are capable of playing value propositions across all of them. So I s- suspect that there will be afterpay players type players in a few of the markets, and there'll be individual players in some of the markets, so I don't know there'll be a region wide player to be perfectly honest.
0: Okay, and maybe directly building on that for to another question um, and maybe for for uh, Joel, because you experienced that firsthand. Do you think merchant payment solutions are or have to be hyper local and when they expand to other markets, how do you stay localized and scale at the same time. So, um, you know, building on what Nigel just said, um, how is there is there an advantage of scale. Um, or it's actually one market at a time. And if you're lucky, the back end kind of makes
2: up for it. Yeah, I think for Southeast Asia region, payments is, um, you know, on a on, on payment acceptance side, it's actually quite a local business, right? Um, so if you look at it historically before fintech companies, it's actually banks, right? It's local banks that are in the, in the space. Um, the, the things that are global or somewhat regional would be probably hardware. Probably be risk, right? So you kind of have like better risk scoring or better hardware, but the execution of it, which is merchant acquisition, merchant support, it's actually very local business, right? So for example, for Faith, we have actually hundreds of people kind of on the ground, you know, meeting merchants, acquiring them. Uh, As much as we love to kind of onboard them digitally, like, you know, through videos or through emails that's still not possible in this region there's still a lot of face-to-face uh, that's required uh, to build trust with merchants and to maintain that relationship um yeah so i think merchant acquisition payment acceptance is definitely local but maybe certain parts of it uh, can be global right uh, but it's kind of more of the back end side of, of things related to risk and also um you know uh, probably the schemes working the schemes so on and so forth
0: okay um during our, our... Prep call. Um, Joel, you wanted to ask a question to Nigel. Do you remember? I I wrote it actually down.
2: Yeah, I do, actually. So I think this is related to Chris, uh, one of the early questions around how do you figure out which companies to invest in, right? So when it comes to entrepreneurs, uh, oftentimes there are two types of companies they could start. One is actually copying or taking something that's existing and, and building that. The second is probably more inventing, right? The path of thinking of something very novel and usually it takes a longer time to figure out the product market fit. So there's kind of pros and cons in both paths. Uh, when, when you kind of copy something there's oftentimes a lot of other companies in the same space that makes it very competitive. So while there is a precedence, there's also, um, you know, there, there's also more challenges, right? Uh, with, with competition versus something that's more original and more somewhat, they call it blue ocean. So uh, how would, should entrepreneurs think about it Uh, as they build their companies uh, for investors like yourself?
3: That is a very good, really good question, John. We sort of, we briefly touched on it. We didn't actually answer it when we had the pre-call. I mean, look, I think, I think there's, first of all, if you're able to build something that's, that's relatively new and not following the pack, then actually you're in a much better position from a remote perspective. It's a harder lift, probably, but, but you're a, a, An original value proposition with a moat around it always has a bit will gather more interest the the thing i'd say though is that um, as you need to you need to think about who you're pitching that to when you're a founder and entrepreneur if you're pitching that to someone who's a generalist then they almost certainly won't see the opportunity if you're pitching it to someone who whose investments are generally in the same space then they're much more capable, I think, of being able to both understand the opportunity and are probably better equipped to help you as a founder grow the business. And therefore taking their money is probably a better outcome for you. And they're more likely to invest in you. And so I think that's that's the, the bit, because I think, I think you're right. I, I mean, I don't want to say this I, I, to be too blunt, right? Dumb investors will invest in the stuff that other people have invested in just because it looks the same in the hope that they'll be successful. Because it's not much hard work, right? Comps are easy, you can look at the other guys, you can go, okay, well, if they can get half of what these guys get, then I'm okay. But I think for investors like us that look five years down the track and actually are invested so that we can help the companies exit, then actually that's never a smart move. unique value propositions and look for the right investor match to that value proposition who will understand what you're trying to do so one of the reasons
1: why nigel is one of my best friends in the industry is i can listen to him all day and uh, hopefully (laughs) sound smart at the end of it thank you so much to our guests nigel and joelle nigel if it's a b2b model i get to go play golf with people joelle financials how big how long how fast and strategics do we compete or cooperate our 12th episode will be with Janice from Google Accelerator and Kez from Capgemini Innovation Exchange, where we celebrate the success of the wonderful community partnerships we have in the ecosystem. You can find us at southeastasiaconnect.com and uh, you can listen and re-watch this at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and YouTube. I'm Chris Tran signing off. Lars,
0: Thanks everybody and uh, see you next week. Thanks Joe, thanks Nigel and uh, make it happen.
1: Thank you everybody. Thanks guys.
3: Bye.